Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, January 7th, 2011. Ooh, turned around on us quick there, Cliff. Episode 191 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Joe, it's good to be off, but it's also good to be back in the saddle again. Yeah, it so, feels good, huh? Yeah, it does. Welcome to 2011. We're coming at you with our fists flying. All right. At the controls is our engineer, Austin Novak. Stone cold Austin Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with Attorney Doug Farquhar of the National Conference of State Legislatures. Uh, we will have our halftime with an unfortunate taps, and of course we'll go back to the interview and then finish with our roundup and bring in our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. We have been adding and updating the radio site every week with the blog. Check out Cliff's blog at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, most people contact the show by listening on their computer. You can follow the link from the iaqradio.com website that, that says go to the show, and then you can either uh, listen with the pro version or the regular version of Talk Shoes uh, program. You can also text messages in across the Internet to us. And, of course, you can also call that 724-444-7444 number. Our ID is 1547. Don't forget we also have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC continuing education credits. Just email me and request a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's take it to the Z-Man for today's trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. 
Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. The IQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, January 7th, 2011, has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. Which U.S. state's legislature is unique having a single chamber or unicameral legislative body? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is uh, attorney Doug Farquhar. From the, uh, he's an attorney with over 20 years' experience working with policymakers on environmental health issues. Primarily works with state legislatures. He has testified 45 times before legislative committees in 30 states in addition to consulting with state agency staff in every state on enlightening state policymakers. He has written books and articles on environmental health policy and has recently been asked to become a columnist for the National Environmental Health Journal. For the past 17 years, Mr. Farquhar has directed the Environmental Health Program at the National Conference of State Legislatures, and we look forward to the interview. But before we do, we've got some music. Give me liberty or give me death. Fight to the end, till my last breath. Give me liberty or give me death. All right, let's see if we've got Doug on the line. Hello, Doug. Hello, Doug. Welcome to IAQ Radio. Well, thank you very much, uh, Joe. This was uh, it's a pleasure to be on the on the call with you. We uh, look forward to this discussion on legislation. First, I guess we should clue listeners in a little bit on, you know, what is the National Conference of, of State Legislatures? What's what's their role? We are a uh, national uh, body of all 50 state legislatures. Um, we uh, are kind of, I guess the best way to describe it is a trade association for the state legislatures. We work to improve the quality and effectiveness of state legislatures, promote policy innovation and communication among the 50 state legislatures and ensure that the state legislatures um, have a strong, cohesive voice before the federal government, and particularly Congress. Are, are all 50 members automatically, do they have to pay dues? Do you, I'm just curious, I, I wasn't aware that they were all actually members of the organization. Yeah, each state uh, pays a due. It's an appropriation that comes to us. So um, basically, we are a um, legislative staff for all 50 state legislatures. And, uh, and that kind of leads us to focus on very unique issues um, or issues that affect all 50 state legislatures. And since many states would not have a specific person or committee uh, dedicated to environmental health, um, that means that it's more likely that they will contact us when there's an environmental health concern that has emerged, and they want to find out how other states have addressed this, what's their federal requirements, what are some of the industry needs and interests, and uh, what's the, some ideas to approach this problem in their particular state. And so we're able to provide that information, um, And uh, but we instead of just doing it for one single state, we would be able to give that to all 50. Um, I've got a question that, now that you commented on that. You know, state, some states like California, uh, you know, they have their own EPA, they have CARB, uh, they do a, a lot of things on their own. Uh, do they play nice with your organization or not? You know, it's, they, they've been real unique um, in the sense that they play very nice with us. They've, uh, uh, even though they have CARB and they have a very um, sophisticated uh, state agency infrastructure, it's the legislature that appropriates their budget. And it's the legislature that will dictate what issues that they have the authority to work on. Now, um, authority gets a little bit uh, tricky when you're dealing with uh, the lay public. You know, there's kind of an assumption out there that the governor or the state agency can do whatever they want. And that's not true. Um, in every case, every issue, um, it's the state legislature that says, as a representative of the entire state, 
we are saying these are the issues we want you to work on. We want the state to have programs on indoor air quality or asbestos or asthma or lead hazards or radon. Um, they, um, they will say that uh, here's the funding available to work on that. So when the uh, climate change issue um, really uh, took precedence in California, they worked with us very closely on some of the um, requirements and some of the impacts it's going to have. Now, we weren't able to give them any information on what other states had done because they were the first in the nation, but we worked very closely with them on how they were going to put the program together, what are some of the policy implications, and how effective that may work out to be. And, uh, and even though they've had a recent challenge to their climate change legislation, it did survive the legislative uh, 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 the election, and, uh, and California is still moving forward on it. Now, you've got three different bullet points on the website that the, the conference works on, improving the quality of effectiveness, and you mentioned these, promoting policy innovation, and then ensuring state legislatures are strong, et cetera. How much of the workload within the organization is related to environmental health-type issues? Well, we are a group of almost 200 people. Um, but when it comes to environmental health, it is myself and uh, one other person. Uh, there's two of us here to work on environmental health issues in the 50 states. Um, majority of our work, obviously, is we need to um, bring the state legislative concerns before Congress. So we have quite a few people in our D.C. office who works with Congress and the administration on a variety of issues, including Tosca reform. Um, we also have um, a very large staff dedicated to the fiscal problems of the states and collecting data from all 50 state um, legislative budget offices to um, find out how much money is available for various activities. And then we also have a very large legislative management staff. Um, but when it comes to specific issue areas, usually we have only one to two people working on a specific issue, and mine happens to be environmental health. You know, you mentioned uh, an acronym TOSCA. Uh, some of our listeners might not be familiar with that. Uh, can you tell us what TOSCA stands for? Yeah, that's the Toxic Substances uh, Control Act. That's the... Um, fundamental organic act that gave the authority for EPA to regulate chemicals um, in, uh, in commerce and in industry um, and how uh, and, and, and many of those aspects are uh, delegated to the states to, um, to adopt and to um, implement. Um, and there's some question in, uh, from both the industry side and from the consumer side that TOSCA is not uh, an effective mechanism for addressing chemical policy in the U.S. and that there are better approaches to take. And um, during, uh, in the next, uh, in the past 12 months, there's been many uh, committee hearings in Congress on TOSCA. In the next 12 months, we assume there will still be many committee hearings, even though um, Congress has shifted the um, issue of chemical uh, policy reform is still very viable, and uh, I know that the industry is in particularly interested in seeing some changes to that law. Okay. Well, what about the, what have been? Uh, we kind of would like to look at the last ten years first, Doug. What were the most active two to three areas of environmental health issues that that were being that you were working with state legislatures on from, let's say. 2000 until last year? You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll really kind of highlight this um, in, in, in a kind of, you know, several different ways. And that's just simply because um, 10 years is a long time. But probably I would say the, the, the number one issue when it comes to environmental health is products. Um, the, um, and, and I don't think the, the public is quite aware of how much of our products that we consume comes from China and overseas, and uh, the and, and and honestly, when you go through 
um, a Walmart or a Target or any of these large stores. So much of this stuff is just produced um, in China and comes from China, and they don't have uh, they don't have the regulatory oversight. One of the things I have talked to legislatures about, and I did this, in fact, with the Pennsylvania legislature a few years ago, was um, the difference with the product being produced in the U.S. versus versus China. And the example I used was the Slinky. The Slinky is uh, was invented in uh, Philadelphia. It has been uh, produced ever, you know, in, for the past 60 years in Pennsylvania, meaning it's subject to not only U.S. federal law, but uh, state and local laws. Um, there are many uh, requirements from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, requirements from the Consumer Product Safety Commission, requirements from EPA, um, local Department of Labor requirements. So when you get a product, it's been very well inspected and reviewed. And uh, so the Slinky is a very safe product because it's been subject to a lot of scrutiny. When you bring a toy out of China, it doesn't have that scrutiny. There is not a, uh, a federal OSHA or an EPA or any of the criteria that we have in this country when it's produced in China, which, of course, is, gives a, a dual edge. One, it's very attractive for manufacturers to build these products over there because they don't have the regulatory oversight. But two, it makes their products very vulnerable. Now, when we had the um, challenge to many of the uh, uh, lead being on several of these toys, um, it was very interesting because, one, Mattel um, was kind of under the impression that they were making uh, a, a good business decision by producing in China. But um, when, uh, when they were discovered that they had lead on these toys and the Consumer Product Safety Commission issued a voluntary recall, and, and that's something that's very important to remember, is that um, the consumer, the federal government rarely um, imposes a mandatory recall, but they'll do voluntary recalls all the time. Well, Walmart, if a product on their shelf is subject to a voluntary recall under their contractual obligations, they do not have to pay. And I was talking with the Walmart representative, and I said, how long did it take for you to get all these toys off your shelf? And they said five minutes, because all it took was some person at a computer in Bentonville and Arkansas, and they pressed a few buttons, and every time that toy was scanned, something came up saying, do not sell, ship back to the warehouse. And so all that product came back. Our Walmart sent it right back to Mattel, and Mattel was not paid for all that product, which they had shipped out to all the Walmarts because of the fact that there was a violation or the Consumer Product Safety Commission found some hazardous materials on these toys coming in from China. That has led to several states adopting laws, making some of these um, uh, issues going from uh, from voluntary to mandatory. and. Uh, and several states have imposed restrictions on products. There's a lot of things now coming down on uh, uh, bisphenol A um, from uh, uh, other things on flame retardants are being restricted or banned in certain states in consumer use. So that's been the largest single thing I've had to deal with. And this also falls in mercury as well. There are several laws out there restricting the use of mercury in several products. And I guess they find cadmium as well in some of those products. Is that Exactly, exactly. Yeah. There's so many metal metals out there that um, that are used in products and things that are considered hazardous in certain situations that puts a lot of pressure on the uh, policymakers to go ahead and uh, limit or restrict or regulate in some manner, mostly because the federal government is uh, not seen as doing an effective job. Is that different from, you know, this emphasis on products? It's actually, I'm a little surprised. We hadn't gotten a chance to talk much before the show, if, uh, very briefly, uh, a couple, three weeks ago. I'm a little surprised that's the number one issue, but now that you've explained it, it, it makes sense. Um, what would be, I guess, well, before we go to prior decades, in the last decade here in the 2000 to 2010 period, what would be the, the second largest area that you were dealing with? 
Well, of course, after 9-11, uh, there was so much more interest in, uh, in disaster preparedness and terrorism response. And there's a big environmental health component to that. Um, with, um, with the sense of disaster preparedness, when a hurricane or a earthquake or anything uh, comes through an area, um, that's when you, you do see not only uh, uh, a lot of issues regarding rebuilding, but also environmental health issues in the sense that uh, uh, certain pests are released. Um, there's quite a bit more um, damage from mold and mildew in houses. Do these houses, should they be reclaimed? Should they be taken out? Um, and there's a lot of very interesting, unique, small things that, well, I can't say small, but unique issues that happen with the particular states. Um, the Federal Emergency Management uh, Agency worked with us to kind of do a dialogue between how California responds to disaster versus how Florida responds to disaster. And if you've noticed, you know, California has more than its share of disasters between earthquakes and fires and, uh, you know, whatnot, but they don't normally have a, require a big response because they have a, a, a big infrastructure in place to respond to that. When a fire occurs, they can get people out, they protect structures, they have people on the ground that can cure these to make sure that the, the problem doesn't get out of hand. Um, Florida, they, they, were, they got to be fairly notorious for simply having a hurricane coming through and asking for FEMA to bail them out. And FEMA really got to the point of saying, we're not going to do this anymore. Um, until your state starts adopting some laws to make structures more hurricane resistant, we're, you know, we're going to be pulling out. And of course, the insurance companies also came forward saying, we're not going to do this either. And if you remember after Katrina, that was one of the big arguments, which was, is this wind or water damage? And, there, and uh, the insurance companies were pretty quick to say, well, this is wind damage and we don't cover it. Um, and so it, there's, it puts a lot of pressure on the policymakers to say, you know, even though we don't like regulations, there's a reason for it. And, uh, and um, so we've seen some building code modifications um, to several of the states to make them more uh, withstand uh, uh, more disasters and more um, intense responses. Uh, Texas had a very, very comprehensive review to try to make sure that um, any of the uh, uh, Gulf Shore um, communities would be protected from any water damages and mold, and it was a health issue there, um, and uh, mostly because they were getting a lot of lawsuits regarding people getting sick from mold and mildew being in their homes. So they passed several laws to try to make sure that buildings, when they're built, are not are going to be mold and mildew resistant. Now, what about in prior decades, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s? I guess in the 90s, uh, you, it, in your bio it said you've been with this group for 17 years, so maybe you're not sure about the 80s. But how about in the 90s? Has that changed the emphasis over the those two decades well yeah we we've looked at um um i think we're in, in the in the 90s we were looking at a little bit more um how do i want to put it very media specific issues and what i mean by that is we would only focus on asbestos or lead hazards or whatnot when you start talking about the the real broad implications um we we didn't really focus on that so much. It was kind of it was kind of the issue that we took out the asbestos, but we left the mold, or we we addressed the um, lead issues, but we did not address the pesticides issues. Now I think there's been more and more of a push to say, you know, we need to address all those issues. We need to um, we need to really make a very broad uh, approach to dealing with this. Um, one of the topics that I'm getting pulled into right now is codes. Um, working with the International Code Council to make sure that codes um, for buildings and for structures and for um, and for uh, communities are health are, are not only 
you know, makes the building safe, but also makes it healthy for the people to live in that. And that's simply because people have uh, found out and contractors have found out that um, even though you may be meeting all the technical requirements of a of a rule or regulation, the building still ends up having mold or mildew or some other issue that uh, that they end up having to take the uh, burden on. They don't want that burden to be there. So there's a there's an interest to uh, to kind of shift and make things more comprehensive. Doug, and that's a Doug I think that your answer. Uh, when it talks to building materials and safer buildings, leads into a question on what is your organization's opinion or your personal opinion, whichever uh, you feel more comfortable giving, uh, on the requirement for LEED certification for governmental buildings. Um, our, our organization opinion is we have none. Okay. It's, it's not an issue. But I understand where you're you're coming from, I, you know, and and this is where I kind of go back and forth, you know. On one side, I can understand where certain people would say, you know, this is a, a unviable standard. It's just another thing where government intrusion comes in. Um, but when you start looking at the long term, I, I start getting more and more respect for these requirements that are out there because it, it does make the building healthier, more secure, more viable for the long term. Um, and again, I'm, I keep on getting back to our Florida, California situation where where in Florida they did not uh, put a lot of emphasis in on building codes, building structures, and it ended up costing the federal government and the state a fortune in dealing with some of these things, whereas in California, which, ha- which has been a little bit more proactive, um, the costs are down. And, and what I mean by the costs is that the cost for insurance and, the, and some of the um, infrastructure costs uh, to keep the building, because the buildings survive some of, these, uh, some of these things. So the buildings have a longer lifespan, and uh, they're, they're working better. Now, um, on the other hand, you also have the issue of just cost, and costs are outrageous in both California and in Florida, but that, um, you know, that uh, would have nothing to do with LEED certification. You know, we've, we've gone, we had uh, a gentleman on, oh, it's got to be two months ago now, Henry Gifford, who was part of a class action lawsuit. He was, the, he was behind it, essentially. Yeah, he was the stimulus behind it against the U.S. Green Building Council. Because his his um, contention was that the lead leadership in energy and environmental design, we always try and get these acronyms out for everybody, just so you know, Doug, um, really didn't save energy and really didn't make buildings healthier. And I'm just curious, are you familiar with that that lawsuit at all? And do you have any comments on that? I I'm not familiar with it. I am very familiar with science. Um, and the way science is manipulated out there. And I have a, um, after being, spending years of my life being bashed for being a lawyer, I've, I've come out to be very cynical also about scientists because um, science is also a propensity of, uh, of what people agree to. Um, and, uh, and I often bring out the, the point that at one time, yeah, the, the, the best scientific minds in the world thought the world was flat, but over time, more evidence came in, and people kind of became convinced that it uh, that the world was round. But there are still people out there who are quite competent, who, for whatever reason, believe the world is flat. Um, and that goes with all science. So if you go before court, um, as I have done in the past, uh, you can always find some competent uh Expert science witness, out there, yeah. expert witness or whatever, to validate your point. Um, what you have to go with is a preponderance of the evidence. What does the majority of the scientists believe? And uh, if a majority of them say, you know, if we go with lead certification, if we double pane our windows, if we do X, Y, and Z, then the, the building is going to be more secure. Then you're going to have to kind of go follow that your, you know, uh, train of thought. Um, if you just rely on 
the minority point of view, uh, you you're going to have to be very skeptical and wonder because because if the whole scientific community is saying, hey, this is a good way to go, then you're going to have to give that quite a bit of credence. I have a question. I just noticed that Congress, I guess, recently changed the name of their committee. It used to be this Committee on Global Warming. Uh, now the, the name has changed to Climate Change. And I notice that you've used this term climate change with your organization. I mean, do you have an opinion or does your organization have an opinion on climate change? You know, whether... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, well, I, our, our organization does not have an opinion on it. Okay. Uh, our, our kind of, it, it's always one of those very touchy subjects um, with policymaking community. It's... Um, and I'm some, somewhat of a cynic by, myself, um, in in the sense of one hand, you do see um, you do see temperatures rising, and uh, it's very interesting. We had a, a session once up in Alaska, and 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 uh, we were talking with uh, uh, some members um, from uh, some of the coastal communities, especially like Nome where their whole city is basically flooding out. Um, the sea levels are rising. And governor at the time was Sarah Palin, and she was very much supportive of this, saying we got to address climate change because we are seeing this planet warming and our communities are being affected. Now, when she became vice presidential candidate, Sarah Palin, she changed her tune. Um, she had different interests, and, and it wasn't the interests of Alaska. And I think that... That was very, very telling to me about what your needs are and what your interests are. If you are living in Nome and the front door of your uh, business is being flooded by seawater, then you're very convinced that there is that the world is warming and that the climate change is a problem. Yeah, I, if you um, if you're living in uh, Denver like I am and don't have to worry about sea level rise, then it's not so much an issue any longer. However, um, I, I do see, I would say, a slow movement. It's not rapid, but it's a slow movement towards um, trying to get products out there that are, uh, that are, are less um, uh, climate adverse, um, that are less polluting. Um, and that's an emphasis that um, can be encouraged by government, but it's really business that makes those those big changes out there. And I think we all can be encouraged by the response we've seen from business. It seems like people on either side of the issue can't really argue with trying to put less pollution into the environment. No, I don't think so. that that's an, I, I guess the big issue is whether or not these things are cyclical or whether or not it's related to uh, the United States and, and other you know, and other countries. But uh, if you can hang on, I think we, we, we won't solve that today. I don't no, think. Oh, sure. yeah. Doug, we've got to I take got a, a comment for you, but that's okay. Oh, go go, ahead, for please, your... go, go ahead. ahead, please. Oh, well, my, my comment is the, the Kyoto uh, protocol and, uh, and the treaty that was put out there. Um, the only countries that signed on to the, uh, the Kyoto uh, climate global warming treaty were countries that did not have to make any changes. Right. Um, they they all signed. The ones that signed on didn't have to do anything. The ones that rejected it were the ones who were going to have to make some significant changes. And of course, the country that was going to have to make the most significant changes were the was the U.S. And even though um, Vice President Gore uh, did his best to you know meet all the requirements, um, there was just you know it was it was it was just kind of ironic that the um, that the this kind of symbol of protecting the world and doing all this stuff um, really was putting all the burden on one country, and that was the U.S. And that's not a, a an equitable or a sensible way of approaching policy. All right, we've got to go to halftime. I just before we go, I want to let uh, guest six know I can't quite figure out the the point of your question there. Maybe you could reword it for me. I don't know if Cliff, you can figure that out or not, but we'll get to that after halftime. Please rephrase it for us a little bit and we'll get it to, to our guest. But before we do that, we've got to take our halftime. So let's do that. All right. Before we uh, go to halftime and thank our sponsors, we want to uh, 
say a note about uh, an industry veteran. I'm sorry to report that Joe B. Jones, age 72, went to his eternal home January 1st, 2011, due to complications following heart surgery. He was a Navy veteran. He played for the Dallas Texans until he was injured and was employed by Kraft Foods for 10 years. In 1969, he and his wife, Joyce, founded a company called Sani Sheen Systems, and that was a professional cleaning business, which they expanded into the distribution of cleaning equipment and supplies. Joe was a true pioneer in the distribution of portable and truck-mounted steam cleaning equipment, and he helped many people enter and become successful in the cleaning industry. He served as president of the Association of Cleaning Specialists in 1994, which is now known as the Restoration Industry Association. Uh, when he was at ASCR, he was passionate about industry education and training. He was deeply involved with the Masonic Order, and he served on the Board of Governors for the Shriners Burn Hospital in Galveston, where he deeply loved helping kids. He also served as potentate of the India Shrine in 2008. He is survived by his wife, Joyce, of 53 years, uh, his sons, Jeff, uh, and his wife, Lori, his son, Jerry, and his fiance LaToya, his daughter, Jennifer, and husband, Sean Jones, a large extended family and many, many friends. He was a loving and devoted husband and father and cherished his family. He enjoyed working, and work was really his hobby. He was a great man from the old school where your word was your bond and a handshake was a contract. He was an avid John Wayne, Johnny Cash, and Dallas Cowboys fan. He will be deeply missed. Okay, thank you, Cliff, as always, for alerting our listeners about these unfortunate uh, issues that come up from time to time. Before we go back to the second half, we've got to start thanking our sponsors. Let's start with our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, they are the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And, of course, thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Cleaning, clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, let's go back to our second half with today's guest, Attorney Doug Farquhar of the National Conference of State Legislatures. Doug, do we have you back on the line? I'm here. All right, let's get into one that I know a lot of our listeners are very interested in. What are your thoughts about this uh, trend by states to do mold licensing on, on a state-by-state -state basis for uh, contractors and, and consultants or assessors, whatever you want to call them? Well, um, 
you know, I think it's really going to depend on uh, the response we're getting and the, the, the level of problems we're getting from some of these uh, uh, buildings. The reason Texas took it on wasn't because Texas is abnormally progressive or a liberal state. It's far from it. It was because all these um, huge lawsuits were coming forth. And if you understand the way uh, litigation operates, if you want to make a lot of money suing somebody, you, you sue in the South. Um, the biggest awards come out of the of the uh, old south basically texas to north carolina um and that's you know, you saw the cases that came forth out of alabama with the person getting what fifty thousand dollars for a botched paint job on a mercedes um the, the the biggest tort claims always come out of the south so it really put a lot of pressure on the uh on the insurance industry which immediately goes to the legislature saying hey get us some relief and this is the the response they they got. Now, are we going to end up with a better, um, more efficient um, workforce out there um, if we have them trained and certified? Um, uh, well, on one hand, it's hard to argue that they wouldn't be more uh, more efficient. On the other hand, is it really in the best interest of the industry to um, undergo additional training, additional regulatory burdens? That's, uh, that's uh, you know, and that's one of those arguments you have to make before your policy committees on whether it's going to be really valuable or not. Okay. What's the, what's the, and your group's position on that? I mean, are you kind of just helping them understand the issue, or are you steering them one way or the other, or is it? Uh, We're just trying to get them to understand the issue. Um, mind you, that that uh, licensure goes pretty deep into um, the infrastructure of a state. Uh, what I mean by that is there are certain requirements out there for folks to become lead certified right now by, uh, and that's a federal law that all fit, that everybody working in the U.S. needs to be lead certified to understand what kind of hazards can occur if they work on pre-78 houses. Um, when you put, put that forth, one of the first states to adopt that was North Carolina. Well, the interesting thing there is one of the reasons they adopted it is because they had no idea how many contractors were out there working because that was one of the few states that didn't have any requirements on the books to even be uh, uh, have anybody uh, check it, uh, certify themselves with the Secretary of State. They really did not have a very good handle, um, probably the worst of all 50 states of people, of contractors out there working um, in the industry, you know, um, and also the people working out of the back of their trucks, as they put it. This program was really their first um, foray into trying to identify who these people were, and um, it, 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 it's given them additional difficulties because not only are they trying to get people lead certified, but they're also trying to find out who they are. You take a state like California, they know everybody. They know who's doing it. Everybody already has to take a, a, a licensing and certification product. Anyway, adding lead to it is fairly simple. You know, as a as a host, I get to occasionally ask a question of my own here, and I'm just curious, where's where does Pennsylvania stand on that list of states, the commonwealths, that well, know who's doing work and who's not? Pennsylvania is pretty good. They have, like I was talking with the example of the Slinky, you have a state Department of Labor, you have a state Environmental Health Department, you have a state um, uh, uh, work on health uh, issues and environmental issues. So you have this whole comprehensive infrastructure in place already, plus you have the unions. And unions are a very strong uh, influencer about who does work where, and they also make sure that their people are trained. Um, Michigan, for example, uh, they are uh, one of their biggest supporters of licensure in the state are the unions, and that's because they are planning to give a additional product to their and service to their uh, members by saying, you know, if you have to get since you have to get licensed, you need to join our union. You need to go to the training. We'll provide training at a discounted rate, and you'll get licensed through the union as part of your union benefits. So unions um, 
have a big influence on the licensing industry. You know, Pennsylvania has a lot of interesting products. Uh, another big Pennsylvania company that's been around a long time, even a lot longer than Slinky, is the Zippo Lighter Company. Yeah. You know, they make a very, I'm sure they make a very, very safe cigarette lighter. <laughs> Cliff, I know you yeah. have a question. Go ahead. Yeah, what we want to do is pro- let's, let's ask the uh, text question that we had from the guest. Doug, have insurance companies and their reinsurers effectively killed windstorm insurance cost revisions? Uh, your position on the legislative impact? Well, I won't call it a position, but I can comment on on how they've effectively adopted this. You know, insurance companies are really interesting. They, um, um, it's one of our one of our policies is that the insurance industry should continue to be regulated by the states. So every state has its own uh, insurance industry that oversees it. And for a lot of it, these people who are on these insurance commissions are ex-insurers. You know, they, they are people who know the industry, and they, they somewhat protect the industry. So um, when, it, when, when they do get these challenges come forth saying you really need to change things or you need to um, uh, pay more money out the door – or cover additional things, it's it's a very rough, um, a very hard uh, way for them to go through the state insurance industries because they uh, commissions because the commissioners are very much pro insurance. That being said, um, there's more and more pressure being put on out there, and I think you very much saw that by what happened after some of the hurricanes that happened in uh, in the Gulf Coast areas. Um, saying, wait a second, you know, you can't just constantly exempt everything. You've got to cover some of this stuff. And uh, so it, it, it makes some interesting pressures out there, meaning the um, homeowners are putting pressure on the insurance companies. Insurance companies put pressure on the, uh, on the insurance commissions, and then the legislature steps in saying you need to be more uh, uh, more. Res- uh, more generous with uh, some of your claims, and it's it's it, it, it's not a very simple fight. It's a very complicated fight that comes forth. Um, the insurance industry would be um, one of their favorite ones. I'm sure you guys are very familiar with is the uh, um, the environmental exclusion, meaning right. if if there's an environmental hazard that occurs, the insurance companies don't cover it. And uh, that's, uh, that's one that gets, um, is getting a broader and broader claim out there because at one time mold would not have been seen as an environmental exclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but many insurance companies are saying, well, that's actually pollution. We should put it under the pollution exclusion clause, which, uh, which is kind of, uh, kind of a, a, a sad for some of these people who, we're assuming that their insurance companies were going to cover some of these damages. You know, Doug, you mentioned uh, about state insurance commissions and insurance commissioners and so on and so forth. Do you have any idea how many states have an elected uh, insurance commission versus how many states have an appointed one? Because it, it would seem that those that are appointed might be more likely to come from industry and those that might be elected uh, – might not. Yeah, the um, I don't have those statistics. I got a feeling a vast majority, at least the ones I'm familiar with, are appointed, mm-hmm. and they're appointed though not. It, it, it's not quite that as as straightforward as I kind of led to believe, where the insurance industry says, "Would you put this person on there?" Um, they have a great deal of influence, but usually it comes from the governor. And in almost every state, you always have this consumer. Um, citizen pointed to the panel, which is the voice of the consumer, which, you know, if you have five people on the panel, it's four against one right. for the most part. Um, they they try to balance things out best they can for the most part. They don't try to be too egregious. But a lot of the results you see, and, you know, when people say, why did, you know, why doesn't my insurance cover this issue or why doesn't don't they have to cover that issue, well, you know, a lot of it has to do with the industry protecting itself. Mm-hmm. Before we go to uh, the roundup, what I'd like to ask is if you could give us your sense of any legislative trends 
out there in, on, the, on the state level, I guess, more so, and even on the federal, with respect to things like asthma and uh, any other environmental health concerns that maybe we haven't touched on yet? Well, one of the biggest things I think people are going to have to be aware of with the new health care legislation is that um, there's going to be more pressure on keeping people healthy because, uh, uh, you know, right now, or not now, but in the past, uh, the, the, our health care industry was really based on having people being sick. And if you wanted to make money, you had to have people being ill. And that's how you made the most money. Um, now that everybody has to be covered and people have to pay for and, and that everybody has to contribute, there's going to be a lot more emphasis um, on keeping people well, on not having so, you know, not having people sick. And, and we have a lot of um, arguments or um, issues brought forth, uh, promoted to state policymakers and federal policymakers saying that if by, you know, we, we should pass this law, whether it be um, motorcycle helmets or anti-smoking legislation or anti-drinking legislation to say that, you know, all these people get sick or hurt and it's put on our coffers. And in the most part, in the past, they could say, well, yeah, but it's being put on the private insurers and if people don't want to cover them, then that's their loss. Now, if people get sick, um, it's going to be put on the public coffers. Everybody's going to have to pay for them. So that's going to put a very large incentive out there to keep people healthy. Um, in the past, it was something nice to do. There was a reason to do it. It was, it was a good thing to do. But now there's going to be much more incentive to say, look, we don't have a healthy population. It's going to bankrupt us. And that's how the new health care um, uh, law is going to dramatically change the way um, health is viewed and environmental health is viewed in this country because, of course, the environment really impacts the uh, health of, of people out there. And I don't think and I think it's only slowly starting to get the respect that uh, that I think us in the industry uh, have for it. So we may be in on the ground floor of uh, a new surge in interest in making sure our environments are healthy ones. Exactly. Um, the uh, you know another thing, and I don't know if you've talked about this on the show, but uh, the presidential's uh, president's cancer panel uh, came out with their report in 2009, talking reducing environmental cancer risk. And and what that group is, is every year the president um, convenes a group of specialists, experts, you know, leaders in the field of cancer to talk about one topic of cancer. Well, ever since they've, they've gathered these groups together, they've always talked about we need to reduce breast cancer, we need to reduce ovarian cancer, Some talk, talking about some disease, cancer disease. In the past year, they shifted the entire focus, and the group came together and said, you know, we don't need to deal with, or it's not we don't need to deal with, but we can't ignore the causes. And the fundamental cause of cancer out there is environmental. And the interesting thing is all these folks that came forth that said it's the environmental, it's environment that's causing cancer and that we need to address this, were all appointed by the Bush administration. These are all people that have been vetted by the Republican administration, even though they served under the first year of the Obama administration. Um, but it, it kind of brings forth the point that this is universal and this is something that really needs to be looked at and needs to start getting some attention because for the most part we do not give very much attention to the risk that the environment has on our health. That's a great uh, segue into our roundup here. We're going to go to the roundup, Doug, bring our technical director in. I know he'll have a comment on that. Unless, Cliff, do you have something before we go to roundup? Well, no, no. I, I just wanted to ask the first question and then... Okay. And then... I just thought we'll go Cliff, then Dieter, then I'll, I'll wrap it up. All right, give me one second. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. 
Cliff, let's go to you first, then we'll bring Dr. Wow in, and I'll wrap it up. Right. I just wanted to ask you a question that kind of picks up on what we were talking about before. Doug, in, in your tenure uh, working with these slate, state legislators, you've kind of seen uh, you, you know, the, the balance of power shift back and forth. And I guess the question is, is it pretty much steady on the rudder, regardless of who is in power, or do these policies tend to shift dramatically back and forth? You know, I would uh, say it's pretty much the former, that the uh, that these policies keep kind of going in the same direction. And, and one of the nice things about working with state policymakers versus the federal ones is you get less caught up in politics. Um, it's still there, obviously. They have to respect their uh, party and the people who got them elected. But it's all policies are not divvied up by party mantras. People come forth and say, this is a problem. I want to deal with it. We've had uh, numerous um, Republicans uh, and, and even conservative Republicans uh, come forth saying, you know, even though I don't believe in regulation, we should do this. Um, one of my one of the best examples of that, or one uh, an example I really enjoy, is a legislator out of Texas. He's a conservative legislator, and he's very straightforward about saying he does not believe in government. But uh, he's also bringing forth uh, certain bills, and um, this one bill which I find very interesting, where he's saying that you don't have to be licensed to do this work, but if you get training to do this then you do not have to, um, then if you are cited for something, you can at least provide an exemption out there. It's basically what they call in the, in, in the legal terms an affirmative defense to say that, uh, yes, you didn't have the license, but however, we did at least get, I was at least trained and I knew what was going on to basically address the fact that most people don't get trained and licensed and to give a little bit more of an incentive out there. And that's done by a conservative Republican to trying to get people to say that we really do want people to get you know, trained in knowing what they're doing and not harming people out there. Well, that's good to hear. Let's bring uh, Dr. Wall. Good day, Dr. Dietrich Wow. I'm sure you have a comment or two from this show. Oh, well, yes. Uh, do we have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> and now comes another phone call, and, well, they have to call back. It's, it's unbelievable. Every time I'm on the phone, somebody calls me. Didn't ring for three or four hours. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And I think Doug made a couple of excellent, excellent uh, uh, comments over there. Uh, can we live our lives without any regulations? I don't think so. And uh, we talked about, or he talked about it, uh, codes. In, in, in buildings, yeah. Ask the people in Haiti and in Turkey, and I think even in Greece, where the earthquakes were, um, whether building buildings without a code is really a very good idea. You know, I don't want to have government tell me how to build my building. I think if they would have had the guidance to do it right, they would have been a heck of a lot better off than standing in front of a pile of rubble over there. Uh, a couple of other things that. That 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 I uh, uh, with, which I have problems is yeah I just saw the other day I was on the internet and I looked at computers and there was a big star and I said uh, for California buyers this computer contains components which the cover or the the state of California has designated as a carcinogen I mean. Yeah. I wouldn't mind to have a pound of plutonium in my house if it is stored correctly and I couldn't give a, a damn about it. <laughs> but, um, you know, if there is something over in there, that is fine. I think in my thermostat, which I'm having now for over 32 years, there is a drop of um, um, mercury. Uh, mercury, and I don't have a problem with that. But another thing is, uh, and it kind of <laughs> adds to this whole thing, a good friend of mine, his grandfather or father, I don't know who it was, uh, came from Germany, and he was a carpenter, and he had a good business in the United States to make ladders out of wood in the old days. The plastic walls didn't exist, and aluminum didn't exist, and all of that stuff. We didn't have extrusions to make that. 
And he took over the business, and he finally got out of the ladder business. They said there were two reasons for it. He said, I don't have enough room on my ladders to put up all the warning stickers. Yeah, it just can't be done anymore. And for every ladder I sell, I get 10 lawsuits against me, so they don't make ladders anymore. It's kind of interesting. The other thing, and Doug touched on that too, with these insurance companies, uh, yeah, I get upset quite frequently. It's yeah, but yeah, you pay for it and you pay for it. Of course, you keep your fingers crossed that nothing is going to happen anyway. But my God, once you need it, uh, you have to jump through hoops, and this is not covered, and that is not covered. Oh no, there is that fine print over there which nobody ever reads. You know, on page sixty-five of your contract with them, and. Um, uh, like, I mean, I, I think that was you know, immediately said, well, that wasn't a water damage, that was wind damage, therefore we don't have to cover it. Um, I mean, if your house is underwater, I think that's a, that's a claim for water. I don't care what anybody tells. <laughs> well, so, you... uh, here we are, and um, he mentioned bisphenol A. I worked with this material, and we got to be very careful with that because Bisphenol A is all over the world, and that is poly, uh, polycarbonate. And every everybody who has a CD, uh, it's made from bisphenol A. It's reacted. Bisphenol A is being reacted, and it makes polycarbonate. Uh, but anyway, I don't know whether it's a good idea to have a polycarbonate milk bottle for an infant I would take glass and uh, heck with it. <laughs> good, yeah. good point, Dieter. Well, yeah. we've we uh, we got to wrap it up here pretty quick, Dieter. Sure. Any, any last final comments? It, was that question to me? I just said if you had any final comments. Oh, no, well, I think I made enough comments over there, but I think it is it, it's good to have these shows. Let me look at both sides of the coin, and I said, hey, this may be good, and this is maybe a little bit, you know, overboard, but um, I, I, I think we got to keep it in focus. Let's put it this way. I like the comments, and I didn't even think about it with uh, the new healthcare stuff that we really and finally put emphasis on, uh, not, yeah, yeah, I don't... <laughs> In the United States, the philosophy was, yeah, look, you're going to get sick, and we have the finest machines in the world to get you rolling again. I'm for preventive medicine, and uh, we have been talking about that one for years and years when I was at the Graduate School of Public Health. Obviously, that was an issue and a topic. And uh, I think we ought to do this. And I think it will cut costs rather than having somebody, you know, do this and this and this for $50,000. Uh, when it could have been prevented for a couple of hundred bucks. So uh, All right. I think that is an excellent point, too. Thank you, Dr. Wow. As always, we will talk soon. And before we go, uh, Doug, I know you've got um, you've got to run probably, but there's a comment I want to uh, read to you here from one of the listeners. Please come back and talk about mold laws, Tosca, and the state impact on is federalism dead yet? So we would love to have you back to talk about that. And before we go, we always like to ask you, is there anything you would like to add that we didn't touch on or that you feel is important for our listeners to hear? Well, I think there are numerous important things we didn't even touch. I mean, we barely scraped the top of this this topic area, and there's so many um, exciting things going on right now in the field. Uh, I would look very much forward to coming back and work with you guys again. And we would love to have you. And before we go, can you give us the uh, website or, or uh, a, a way that listeners can contact you if, if you'd like? Yeah, you can always uh, reach our website, which is www.ncsl.org. Um, perhaps even a more effective way to find out what our environmental health um, information is is just go to Google and type in state environmental health and you will see our database of all the state laws out there that we're tracking right now um, it, um, and uh, if you want to contact me uh, directly there's always uh, email doug.farquhar f-a-r-q-u-h-a-r at n-c-s-l dot o-r-g 
All right. Well, this is Joe Yu saying thanks so much to our guest this week, Doug Farquhar, for joining us, the program director for environmental health from the National Conference of State Legislatures, and we will definitely take you up on coming back and going into more detail. Before we go, I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Chris Lotney, back, back in, in the, the saddle. saddle. All right. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Of course, Austin Stone Cold Novak at the controls. But most importantly, that growing group of loyal listeners out there. Thanks for joining us this week. Please come back and join us again next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.